Hello everyone, it's Tom here. F1 drivers are risk takers and history makers. For more than 70 years, they've raced on the edge for the chance of glory. F1 glory is still as glorious as it was back in the 1950s and 60s, but thankfully, the risk has reduced. Our sport is not risk-free, but it's much safer now than in its early years. On 30 days of Beyond the Grid, day three, we're going back to an era where drive to survive had a totally different meaning with Sir Jackie Stewart. Jackie is one of the greatest racers of all time. He won three world titles and he's still in the top 10 for race wins. Impressive when you consider that the last of his 27 victories was 50 years ago. Jackie raced in Formula One from the mid 1960s to the early 70s. Then later, he scored a win as boss of Stewart Grand Prix. He's in his 80s now, but he still adores the sport and I often bump into him in the F1 paddock. The interview you're about to hear was recorded back in 2018. Both the journey to his hotel in Mexico City and the chat itself were fantastic and memorable. I hope you enjoy it. Jackie, great to see you again. Welcome to Beyond the Grid. We have just, well, we haven't really fought our way through the Mexico City traffic because we've just come by helicopter. <laughs> Certainly a good way to go. Well, I've traveled a lot in my life and I've found out that to take the stress and the strain out of life, if you're living a fast life, using every possible opportunity you can to remove the hassle uh, makes a big, big difference. And I'm lucky enough that I've been around for long enough and have an awful lot of nice friends and uh, the use of a helicopter here in Mexico City particularly and also in San Paulo is pretty important so uh, we got from the track pretty painlessly and just for a moment I felt like a rock star now there are so many chapters to your life that it's it's going to be quite difficult to sort of condense it down but let's start by talking about your driving career um you're regarded as one of the greatest drivers of all time. But who was the toughest competitor you came up against? I think the best competitor I ever drove at the same time with was unquestionably Jim Clark. Um, my ultimate hero was Juan Manuel Fangio. I've got his autograph. I met him many times and he was the first man to congratulate me when I won the Formula 3 Monaco Grand Prix way back. And for me, he was just a giant. But as a racing driver, I think Jim Clark had no equal. And I think to this day, I would put Fangio first and I would put Jim Clark second of all of the drivers that have ever been at least within reach of me uh, in the sense of me not being able to have seen Caracciola or Nuvolari. But to me, Jim Clark was the man. I learned more from Jim Clark than I did from anyone else. Right. What did you learn from him? Smoothness. Um, you know, more people, I think, died in Lotuses than any other racing car, at least in the levels of Formula One. But Jim Clark didn't stress a Lotus. He was so smooth and so gentle that... He just drove the car with such ease and the car loved it. Whereas if you overdrive, which lots of people do, then that's when things break. So I learned from Jimmy uh, to try and be as smooth and gentle with the car as I could. 
and it paid off for me uh, in more ways than one. But he was a very nervous man. People don't realise that. Jim Clark hardly had any fingernails. He ate his fingernails right down to blood sometimes. And yet when he got into a car, he was absolutely at home in the fullest sense. So we shared a room, we shared a flat together in London. Um, so we, we talked a lot and I learned an awful lot from Jim Clark. What kind of a flatmate was he? Good. Uh, he was a boy for the girls. Most people didn't see that side of Jimmy. Um, he was skilled to the highest level because every single one of those girls thought they were the only one. Um, so there was quite a, a movement in and out there. Helen and I, we were obviously, go, Helen was going to most, my wife was going to uh, almost all of the races with me because she was doing the timekeeping and the and the lap charting and so forth. And, and she knew his sort of steadies, if you like. There was only one real steady. Um, but all the others, uh, she would never have known about, I don't suppose. But each one of them thought that they were truly the only ones. Go on, what sort of, did you ever have any arguments as flatmates? Did you argue about how much milk was left in the fridge or was Jimmy just completely no, wrong? Never, never, never. We never had any, ha well, we went out for breakfast every morning. <laughs> um, so where was this? This was in London? Uh, this was in London, yes. It was Balfour Place was the, where the apartment was. It belonged to Sir John Whitmore. Okay. And he gave it to Jimmy and I because he had his big estate down in the east end of uh, south of London. Um, big estate. So he lived there. But he gave this to Jimmy and I to use whenever we were there. So it, it was great. The Trattoria was right next door where we went for breakfast, sometimes lunch. Um, we went to the movies together a lot. We, we, we didn't get to movies because Jimmy could never make up his mind which one to go to. <laughs> by, the, by the time he, he, he decided, he'd closed the doors. It was pathetic, really. But... Uh, it was a great friendship. How interesting that he could be so indecisive outside the car, yet such a totally mesmerizingly brilliant driver in. Yeah. Yeah. So if Jimmy was the best driver, who was like, who was the dirtiest driver? Um, you know, we didn't have many dirty drivers in our time because the sport was so dangerous that you couldn't take liberties. You couldn't start having mild comings together. It just wasn't on because there was no runoff areas. There was no deformable structures. There was telegraph poles or there was trees or there was banks that had railway sleepers on them to hold back the earth and to stop the cars getting to the general public. And there was no... At that time, no debris fences or anything of that kind. So there weren't many people. Clay Regazzoni was the only man that ever weaved in front of me. It was at the Nürburgring, and it nearly lost me. In fact, it did lose me the World Championship in 1972, um, at least from having a real good run at the championship. And he was weaving all the way down the straight. That had never happened before in my life, my career. And I was just astonished because every time I would come up, I had the Cosworth engine. He was in a Ferrari. And um, 
I tried everything. I held back and then had to run at him or I would strip stream him and pull out wham away we'd go. And of course I in the end he collided with me. He put me off the road in one to the third corner of the Nürburgring. And I was furious. I got out of the car and he continued. His car wasn't damaged. He put me in the barrier actually. And I went to raise control. And I said, listen, this is ridiculous. Here we are leading, you know, going for the championship with Emerson. And I've just been taken out. I could have finished at least second or first. And I was taken out. And, of course, there was no television in those days, so there was no proof of it. And the race was still running. So, therefore, there was nothing ever done about it because in those days it just didn't happen. So it's a different era. Did you confront Clay after the race? No, I didn't bother. I would say, why not? You obviously feel very strong. I mean, yes, I know, but outside the the race car, Clay Ragazzoni was a lovely man, really a nice man. But when he was in the race car, sometimes he just threw wobblies, and one of them was that day. So it wasn't anything. I wasn't going to gain anything by going and have an argument with him. Uh, that race was over. But it taught me that I've had to be pretty careful with him uh, thereafter. He won the Italian Grand Prix, I think, in uh, 70. I was second, but I was far enough behind that it wasn't a problem. I was in the march and it wasn't all that good, but it happened to be as good as it could have been. Um, but he won the race and there, there was no trouble then. We, we, we never get into any bother. Let me throw another name at you. Jack Brabham. Jack Brabham uh, was difficult to pass, but he wasn't never weaved. He would just use extra extra piece of road and stones and rocks would be coming at you. It was ridiculous. Uh, but he just knew what to do, and he did it, I think, intentionally. But, you know, nowadays, the tires that they're using, they would probably have burst the tires doing what he was doing then. Uh, because at the end of the track was usually not just gravel, but stones. And the discipline of the drivers was so much more than it is today. Drivers just didn't have collisions in those days, because if they did, they were usually huge. And many times, death would come from it. So it was different. But it, it was it was sometimes like the sort of magician, in that he went as, you know, he was a very good driver, Jack Brabham. But on other days, in Formula 2, for example, when they had the Honda engine, we had lots of battles. And he would just forget sometimes to change gear, something you would never imagine a man like Brabham to. You're sitting behind him, you're hearing this engine going longer, and you had already changed gear, and it was starting to splutter over the you know, over rev limiter. So he was absent-minded in a funny sort of way from time to time. But... You know, what he did as a constructor to be a driver, to win the world championship in a car of his own make and, you know, very close to the time he was going to retire, I think it was one of the best stories in, in motorsport, certainly in Formula One. Now, what gave you the greatest driving pleasure? Can you name a track and a car? 
was always nice to win Monte Carlo because it was glamorous, it was colorful, it was exciting. Princess Grace was there. It was so glamorous in these days. And you were presented the trophy by Princess Grace. So I won the Formula 3 race there in 1964, a long time ago, before you were born probably. Yes. And that was a big deal. But then I won the, the Formula 1 race three times, I think. So if you're going to win a Grand Prix, you would choose to win Monaco or your own Grand Prix, your own country. You had to win both of those. The Nürburgring, however, was by far the most challenging, the most dangerous, but also the most satisfying. And to win there, I think you had to be reasonably special. And a three-litre Formula One car around the Nürburgring was unbelievable. I mean, 13 times you took off. Uh, and, you, you know, these things didn't land as well as they took off. Uh, it, it was just that... If I had never won the Nürburgring, there would be something big missing from my career. Everybody talks about Spa being the ultimate, En Rouge being the greatest. But en Rouge wasn't a great corner at all for me. It wasn't that difficult. Master was the one, because it was faster. And there was a, a big house on the left-hand side of a, a left and right, and a big house on the right-hand side. And to go there flat in a 1500cc car, you were somebody quite special. And in your role as a journalist, you'll appreciate this. The only person I ever saw at Master was Jinx. Jenkinson went all the way out. It was a long way out, and you could only walk. And he would have his head out the end of this building. And there was only one Jenks, you know, with the beard and mm. the glasses sometimes. And you would think to yourself, oh, I could take that helmet off. You know, I could just swish it past him. But he was there because who was going flat? Maybe two people. And he wanted to listen for himself because this was obviously before the time and of And he TV was a great and... writer. Yeah. And that was, for me, the corner in the world. But the Nürburgring was the challenge in the world. So Nürburgring 68, was that your, the victory that stands above all the others? Um, Just to remind the listeners, you won that race by an extraordinary four minutes in the rain, the green hell. Yeah, the fog and the... That wasn't the start uh, delayed because of the rain and... The issue was, it was start delayed, but it should never have been started. Today, it would never have been started. Mm. Greatest victory? Uh, technically, probably it was my best race uh, in the sense that uh, because there was other people who had Dunlop tyres as well. The Dunlops were good in the wet at that time. But that that was a peak and valley job. Sometimes Firestone would have the, the faster tyre at Rouen or the French Grand Prix. I can't remember what year that was, 68, I think. The, the Jackie X with uh, those tyres were fast. He had Firestones, I think, at that time. And we just couldn't keep up, you know. So in those days, there were several tyre companies in the business. And the Nürburgring certainly favoured, in my opinion, the, the Dunlop tyre. But there were other Dunlop runners, you understand. But winning it by 3.3 3. 3 or 3.4 seconds or something. It, you know, I, I removed emotion from me completely when I drove racing cars. And I learned that from my shooting because when I was shooting for Scotland and then for Great Britain, it was a much more demanding sport than, than motor racing. Because if you were uh, nervous, for example, at a European Championship or the World Championship, 
and you had to stand up there for Olympic trap, which is 15 traps that throw targets out, sometimes the same trajectory, but instead of doing 130 mile an hour, they're only doing 30 mile an hour. So the ability to, to see the difference of how much lead you had to give to the target was absolutely important at the highest level. I don't care who you are, when you're starting something big, you're a little bit uptight. I had to remove the uptightness because if I was uptight and I missed an early target and it was a 200 target competition, you never get it back. It's always going to be 199. It wouldn't be 199. If you, to win a championship, you're talking about 200 bird targets, 100 target targets. Um, you would win it with a 192 or a 200, but over 200 targets. So if you, because you were nervous and uptight at the first one or overly confident at the last four or five, you were going to lose the gold medal, which it was at that time or whatever. There was only as usual first, second and third. So I learned that I couldn't have emotion because if I had emotion, I would have got uptight at the beginning or overconfident because I was shooting so well. I had to remove emotion. If you look back on the records, Jackie Stewart won almost all of his races in the first five laps because everybody was uptight. People were dying at that time in motor racing regularly, so the grid wasn't like it is today. When I go onto a grid, as you do often with your microphone, the guys are very relaxed. I mean, you can interview anybody almost as soon as they're finished with their engineers. In our day, there was none of that. And there was more journalists then, not television, but writers, because the whole grid was uptight. Were you uptight because of a fear of failure or a fear of injury? No, I or was uptight. I was never uptight. Well, that's the as whole just, point. That's the whole point. I, I removed the uptightness because I learned that if I got my emotions down, I described it. In the morning, I would waken up very early because oh, there's a Grand Prix on. And keep in mind that when all your friends have been killed or seriously injured, you know, there's an element of that. You've got a wife and you've got children. Uh, you had to learn how to obliterate that element of your life. The only way I could do it was go to bed and I never slept well unless, and I read, and I'm a bad reader. I'm an extreme dyslexic. I can't read and write properly. So for me to read a book is a big concentration shop. So the big concentration shop took me away from thinking about the potential of the next day. For example, I didn't have that problem in practice or qualifying sometimes because that's happened then too. But for the race, I would wake up far too early then I would have to read. It would have to be a light thing. It would Harold Robbins or, or Alistair McLean or something like that, that that was easy to read, but it took me away. And then the so race morning, you've woken up early yeah, and you're reading The Guns of Navarone or whatever yeah, it was, Alistair right. McLean. Right. I'd, write, I'd do that. Before breakfast. Yeah, before breakfast, I would have only toast and, and, and hot water for breakfast because if you have an accident, you never want to have a full stomach. The doctors don't want a full stomach. So I always raced with hardly anything in my stomach. 
But I would have to read again after having my toast and my tea or hot water. Uh, I would read it until I had to go. I had my shower. I read it again. or went to the bath in these days more than a shower. Uh, and then I'd, you know, go to the track. And, but by which time I'm, I'm now downloading my... I described it as an overinflated rubber ball. If you bounce that on the sidewalk or the pavement, whatever country you come from, there's cracks in the pavement. An overinflated rubber ball goes out of control. It doesn't go up and down in your hand easily. If you deflate that rubber ball, it comes up to your hand much more slowly and it doesn't get pushed and shoved because of the little indiscretions on the, on the surface. So I describe my emotional element of removing um, emotion by deflating the rubber ball. By the time I got into the cockpit, the rubber ball was just a, a load of rubber. There was no, no air in it at all. Was this a solitary thing, or did wife Helen help you in your no. mental preparation? Helen I almost ignored uh, <laughs> in the morning of a race, uh, and the night before too. I just, did, you, did you share the, the room the no, night She before? would know that. Oh, yes, we shared the room, but she would know that she, you know, Helen by which time had been married to me quite a long time, and we've now been married 56 years. So she she was already knowing what she was doing, and she was doing the lap charting and the timekeeping and everything. So it, it, it was it, it worked my way. I'm not saying that would be right for everybody, but it was good for me. Um, but what it absolutely did for me was my first five laps. I had no emotion at all, whack. I would never miss a gear or never make a braking distance or never get entangled up with somebody. I hardly ever had a collision with another car during my entire career. Um, because if somebody's nearly colliding with you, they're usually out of control. They're usually over the top. So you get them in the next corner. I understand the whole mind management thing and, and what it did for you at the start and things like that. But Jackie, in terms of just raw talent, where do you think your advantage lay? What was it? A feel for, a feel for what? I think it was, again, being analytical, you know, again, with the mind. If you drove a car and you overdrove it, and lots of people overdrive, the large majority of people overdrive, they're over the curbs, they're over the grass, they're over everywhere. Why would you want to overdrive? It's only cost you something. You don't go over something and bump and bang going over a, 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 a poor surface. So you can't stay on the road. So you may be a wee bit slower from time to time, but you're not abusing the car. You, you, sh you should be gentle and in love with the car, not whipping it. It just doesn't work. But if the data that we have today had been available in your time, where would your advantage have been, do you think? Still staying on the track. I saw this weekend, we're in Mexico City right now. This weekend, I've seen some of the best drivers in the world run out of road. And I'm thinking, why are they running out of road? Because they think if they go a wee bit faster, it's a bit of a risk. Schumacher was the first man to recognize that, in my opinion. 
He went off the road. Alan Henry, a journalist that you may remember who's passed away, Alan Henry did it for me, some research, and Michael Schumacher went off the road every single weekend of every Grand Prix that they went to in a year because he knew that he could do it and it wasn't going to do any real damage. You might pick up some, some of the gravel, put it into the radiator areas. You'd have to go back to the pits to have it cleaned out. But it wasn't an accident. In our day, you couldn't do that because it would have been an accident. So you had to discipline yourself to stay on the road. People did go off the road, but it slowed them down. And it still slows them down to this day. It gives the car a rougher ride. It allows mechanical failures that you might not otherwise have had. So, again, recognising the limitations of your car. In a, in a Formula One racing car, it's a real hybrid. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a hybrid horse, you know, that's it's fragile, but it's fast. And if you treat it nicely and let the reins, let the bit go slow, go into the mouth gently, the hair, it'll keep its head up and it'll be faster. I feel like a I'm car, Frankie Dottori. <laughs> a racing car is exactly the same. And that's where I learned a lot from Jim Clark. And, and he seldom ever had a mechanical failure that everybody else had. In most cases, people were killed in. His death wasn't a human error in my mind. It was a simple, something went wrong, either a flat tire or a, something went wrong with that car. That wasn't a Jim Clark accident. So I think liberties that are taken now are completely different from my period. That just couldn't have happened. So the discipline, call it mind management, call it what you like. Um, the good guys didn't go off the road. I understand that. I'm going to have one more go at this because I think particularly for the younger audience, they've all heard of... Sir Jackie Stewart, they know your record. They know how many races you won. But what made you so special? Let's say, let's take qualifying, pole position. See, qualifying wasn't important then. You Kent, still got 17 poles. No, but, yes. Was it under brakes? Was it, what was yeah, it about? You see, you? Of course, keep in mind, we never had as many races as you have now. 17 poles is nothing. Mercedes-Benz uh, just lost 100 pole positions today as we're doing this recording. Um but Kentill didn't worry about pole positions as long as I had a race car that was set up to race, not a one-lap wonder, but to do it with consistency and precision and be drivable, both in full tanks and empty tanks or low tanks. So we spent our time doing that, and I really didn't have very many pole positions, but we won a lot of races. You know, I I only won 27 races out of 99 races, and, and I must have been on the podium a few times. I, I, right now, I couldn't tell you how many times I've been on the podium. So uh, it, it worked for me, uh, and it was my way of doing it. But actually, the rest of my life has worked in the same uh, philosophy, if you like. So what was the hardest thing about retiring at your peak? There was no hard bit. It was a... It was a relief. Um, the current racing drivers wouldn't understand this at all. I mean, I was only 34 years of age. Uh, I was certainly driving at my best that I've ever driven. Um, because once you, once you pass a certain level, it's quite clear when you're even just a wee bit off. 
you're critical of yourself to an extent that you don't do that very often. In those days, we were driving Formula One, naturally, but we were driving Formula Two, touring cars, sports cars, GT cars, Indy cars, Can-Am cars. One year, I travelled across the Atlantic 86 times. I was doing TV commercials. I was for Ford Motor Company in Goodyear. Uh, for lots of people, Simon Eyes for wheel horse tractors for the garden. And at the same time, I was doing ABC's Wide World of Sports as a colour commentator. And that was the greatest television sports network in the world at that time. Spent more money doing it, did the best things, did several Olympics with them uh, as a commentator and a, you know, a colour commentator with great people. So I was doing that and doing all the other stuff and racing Formula One. But the Can-Am I was doing at the same time, uh, and God knows how many other races. So I was burned out, and I, you know, I had a duodenal ulcer um, that hemorrhaged. But the year before, I had mononucleosis, which is a blood disorder through overdoing it. And I won the world championship that year. In 1971, I had mononucleosis. That was the year I did the 186 crossing the Atlantic. And... I was just burned out. There's a, pic, a film that Roman Polanski did on me called Weekend of a Champion. And there's a shot in it where I'm signing autographs. I'm going through a crowd and there are masses of crowd behind. And in those days, Monte Carlo and all the glamour, the colour and all that, it was in Monte Carlo. And if you look at that, you'll see a guy who's completely burned out. Still writing to autographs. What were the telltale signs? Just huh? what your, your mannerisms? Oh your... yes, you you see the tiredness, my body movements, my face, my I was just burned out. No, I won the race, and I won the race with only the front brakes working. Uh, but I was burned out because by then I knew how to drive a racing car, uh, and in Monte Carlo, if you treat a racing car gently and with finesse it's not that difficult it's not a difficult race to win actually um, and I won the race but you'd see me doing that it was actually after qualifying I think or whatever it was it wasn't the actual race or after it and that, that burnout then the next year I had a junior loss of the hemorrhage so I, I lost the world championship that year because I had to stay out of two or three Grand Prix. Um, and by the time 73 came along, so 71 was mono, 72 was Judean Lusser, 73, I'm still tired, I'm still doing all the things that I was doing, um, which I loved doing the, the ABC stuff, and I loved being with the Ford Motor Company, doing vehicle dynamics and teaching vehicle engineers how to assess a car. All of these things I had direct, fantastic satisfaction from. But I was crossing the Atlantic with big time zone differences and driving all these other formulas. So when I came back to your question, I, was, I nearly retired in 71. And then I thought by October, November, I was feeling a lot better. Well, it's okay, I'll keep going because I knew I was driving reasonably well. Again, I got burned out with the, the mono. And then in April of the following year, I said, right, Jackie, you've got to... And I couldn't leave Ken 
with a, a driver because we were we won the world championship that year, so we we were competitive. If I had dropped out, Francois at that time wasn't really right to to actually take over where I was. You're talking about Francois Sever. Yeah, he would have been at the end of the season, I think, but he, it was still climbing up to being where he, I think, would have been. So I decided in April that I would retire. Told Ken Tyrrell, called Walter Hayes at Ford Motor Company and John Waddell at Ford and nobody else. Jackie, what I think is fascinating is that clearly something had to give. You were making yourself ill because you were working so hard. And it's interesting that the thing you were best at is the thing that you gave up. Maybe. You didn't think of, I, why don't you I, cut back on the other bits and focus on Formula yeah, 1? Yeah, but you know what? I loved working for Ford. I mean, I got as much satisfaction out of teaching young dynamic engineers, vehicle dynamic engineers, how to do things. And and that that stimulated me. But in the end, I was burned out. Did anyone in Formula One try and lure you back? Yes. Yeah, I got, yeah, I got several offers. I, I got one offer, a huge amount of money. Pray I mean, something like six, six million for a year back then. And which team was that? I, can I never, you tell, can no, you tell us who that tell was? You. <laughs> uh, but it was, uh, it didn't even tempt me. I was so happy not to be a racing driver. I have to this day, I have never had one day of regret of retiring. That in, the, in that particular case, my timing was just perfect for Jackie. Um, and I, I, I just have been the happiest man you know, not driving a racing car. I still love the sport. I, I adore going to Grand Prix. I, I love the people. I, you know, the people I know. I've known some of these mechanics I've known forever. And, you know, then with Stuart Grand Prix, uh, I had, you know, some of these mechanics are still in the, in the business today. So I'm, I haven't lost the sport. I love the sport still. Um, but I, I just don't want to drive it. It gives me no thrill at all to, to go out and drive a car to the absolute limit of its ability. Been there, done that. Yes, yeah, I suppose so. Well, we'll come on to Stuart Grand Prix in the minute, but was there an element back in the early 70s where burnt out, yes, but also just exhausted and frustrated at the deaths of all your friends. I think yeah. I've heard you in the past talk about, is it 52 funerals you went yeah, to? In your yeah, career? I love funerals. Hal and I counted uh, 57 people uh, who had died who knew we knew well enough to have holidayed together, travelled together, dined together, lived together, you know, sort of thing. Um, it's a strange the, thing. A racing car suddenly becomes something else when you slip into it and emotions disappear for me. I mean, the worst example of that would have been um, when Jochen died. Jochen Rindt. Um Yeah. Yeah. Because it was in practice. And I actually was with him, uh, I believe, when he died. And I certainly was with him when he had died. And then the race was the next day. When Piers was killed at Zandvoort, it was in the race. Or when... Williamson died at Zandvoort. It was in the race. And when Joe Slesser died at Rouen, it was in the race. Um, and we drove through the flames and we drove through the mess and we drove through the smell. But you were in a racing car. And ironically, the racing driver, when it comes to that, is not a normal animal. 
because you just keep going. And the race has never stopped. Uh, and when you know who the other driver is, in the case of Piers, his helmet came off. Piers Courage. Yeah, we knew. Jochens was one of his best friends, maybe his best friend, and I was one of his best friends. And when you know who it is and you're looking at it and there's no coming up, seeing the guy and saying, I'm okay. The race goes on, and it's amazing that that emotion didn't touch you at all. And that's an awful thing to say about yourself. And that, if, if Jochen was alive today, he would say the same thing. And we won the race, he won the race, I was second. We were on the pony, and we chose not to spray champagne. That was the only thing we did, and kept our heads bowed. But then you've got to go and see your wife, and Nina was there, that's Jochen's wife, and they were look, Helen and Nina were looking after Sally. Piers' wife? Yeah. And you're surrounded by that. And the grief that they've gone through, doing what they had to do, Helen had to go and pack the bags in the hotel for Sally. These things you can't forget. Now, you would think that would put you off completely, and yet you were at the funeral... And, and the next race you went to was just another normal race. Uh, you could say the animal was a bad animal to even behave like that, but it was a strange chemistry that racing drivers had in those days and still had the camaraderie, still had the close friendships. You know, when Jochen died, I mean, it was a terrible thing because Nina and Helen were best friends and Nina was there with me at that time. And then Helen and Nina went to the hospital because nobody dies at the circuit in Italy because if they do, the event is taken out for the rest of that weekend. There's no race. So somebody dies in a helicopter, somebody dies on arrival at the, the hospital. But Jochen was died before he left the track. But what I was about to say was... Ken Tittle, 35, 45 minutes after that, said, Jackie, you've got to go back out. It was in the march, and it was the last practice session. And I have no embarrassment by saying that I was in tears when I got into the car. But then, and this is the animal of the racing driver, when the visor went down, I drove the car, I put a lap in only, I did the warm-up lap round and the first flying lap was the fastest lap I've ever driven at Monza at that time. And there was no thought of, that. some of the journalists said to me, oh, that must have been a death wish or something, nothing to do with it. Your head clicked in and you were doing the same smooth things that you were doing before to, to put in the fastest lap that you had done, ever, at Monza. So the animal is a strange animal in those days. That animal doesn't live today because they're, they're not surrounded by death. They're not surrounded by bereavement. They're not surrounded by standing and offering your condolences to the mother, the father, the grandfather, the grandmother, the children. It just doesn't exist today. So in some ways it was the making of a man. In other ways it was the breaking of a man. Was there an arrogance in all of you that it was never going to happen to you? I don't think so. 
I had a doctor who travelled with me because I knew that there weren't sufficient medical facilities in those days. So I got one of the leading specialists uh, in several areas of medicine in Switzerland. And he came to every Grand Prix and every practice session that I did. I was in fear of an accident happening and me having my life taken unnecessarily because they neither had the equipment or the people. I mean, we had one racetrack where the chief medical officer, who was the only real man there, was a, he was a gynecologist. He wasn't a brain surgeon. He wasn't a, a fire specialist, of which there was much in those days, or any other internal medicine or, or fractures. So... It was just that he was an enthusiast. We'll have him as the medical man. But Jackie, you had accepted then that you could die in a racing car. Why was Formula One worth dying for? I can't even answer it. I don't know. It stimulated me. It was something I was good at. Uh, The camaraderie with all of my colleagues was very close. I mean, we shared so much together. It's just something that is not recognised or even takes place today. I mean, we would be rushing for Can-Am races, for example, to get the evening flight out of Los Angeles to get back home. And there would be Denny Holm and myself and Pete Revson and, and so forth. What's the fastest way to get out of a racetrack after a race? Well, is it just the way we've just done it? <laughs> By helicopter or no? There weren't helicopters okay. then. You went by road. You could get a police escort. Police escorts are not as good as an ambulance. An ambulance. So we would go to the ambulance guys, who were all enthusiasts usually, and say, hey, we've got to get the LA flight or the San Francisco flight if you were at Monterey or wherever we were. Uh, we need to get out. Can we get out with you? And can you use the lights? So, and the big rush was never to be put in the back of the ambulance. We'd be all rushing to get at the front of the ambulance. <laughs> and, and this was all discussed at the grid. You know, have you, have you fixed that, Jackie or Denny? Have you fixed it? And we'd sit in there and we'd get out. And, <laughs> and the police guys could never guarantee you were going to do it because, oh, the head of police is here and I'm not allowed to do that. Ambulance always did it. What a wonderful story. But what changed in you then between, let's take, we talked about Jochen Shunt in 1970. And just to put some flesh on the bones, you know, you live next to him in Switzerland. You've said already that his wife, Nina, and your wife, Helen, were best Mm. friends. You saw a lot of each other. And yet you still did the race. In fact, as you said, you went out and did the fastest ever lap of Monza that you'd done at that time. What had changed in you by Watkins Glen? 73, your last race when Francois was killed on the Saturday and you didn't race on the Sunday. It just confirmed to me that I shouldn't be doing it anymore. It wasn't the fact that I was frightened to do it anymore. I mean, I I think I could have won that race because the car was good and Francois' accident was horrendous and every single person who went to that accident, they all had to get out of our cars because the debris was all over the place. There was no way to drive a car around it. So everybody stopped. I was the last man on the road. I had, you know, just come out of the pits. I was the last man. And um, they had all done their thing. The accident had occurred, so the debris was such that they all had to get a stop and get out of the car. They all wanted to go and see if they could help because it was such a big shunt. I arrived at the end of all of that, and it was blue. 
and I thought, oops, and I thought it was Chris Amon because we had three cars running at Watkins Glen that year, Montreal, uh, sorry, Toronto and Watkins Glen. And and then I saw Chris, who was walking along, and I said, are you OK? I literally put my thumb out, are you OK? All he did was shake his finger at me, it's not me. It could only have been Francois. And they had all gone to Francois. And it was the worst sight I've ever seen in my life. And to this day, whether you talk to Jody Schechter, you can't talk to Chris Amon because he's passed on. You talk to Jody Schechter about it and he might be in tears. And you could do the same with me. I mean, it was so horrendous. So when it happened, it was nice because I already won the world championship. Um, it would have been nice to win the race because it would have given me 100 Grand Prix. And to win your 100th Grand Prix would have been another nice thing to do. Uh, in those days, because there was no many races, not like today. I mean, the 21 races as we sit here. We were only using maybe 11 races a year, sometimes 12. Uh, so to make the 100 was a nice number. But I had no no wish to drive. Not because of the death, not to be, uh, in respect to the death. I think it would have been wrong for me and the team to go out there just to win a race when somebody like Francois had died. The mechanics, whether it was Joe Ramirez, whether it was, you know, the boys, uh, because Joe's still coming around the racing, I say, but whether it was Roy Top or whether it was all the other, you know, Ken's mechanics, it just wouldn't have been the right thing to do. And I, Helen was there too. And, and Helen and... Um, such a close group of people, Nora and Ken and myself and Helen and and Francois. I mean, it was a really close family. And I think to go out and do another motor race to show off that you're winning another Grand Prix just seemed to be so unimportant. I think it's fascinating, though, that that shift had happened when obviously you had carried on in the past, hadn't you? Yes, but because I had already made my decision. Helen didn't know. I mean, after the accident, Helen and Nora Turrell left the track in disgust and fear and just horrid things. I stayed with the mechanics and with Ken, and I went down later and told Helen that, that by the way, I'm no longer a racing driver. That's the actual words I said. Um, and I, from that moment... I, I never, I've never had one minute or second of of regret. I mean, I, we the next morning we got up, we went to the track. I decided to stay and see the start of the race. I walked through the grid, and then as soon as the race started, we got into a car and went to you know New York to catch a plane. Jackie, what reaction did you get from your wife when you told her that you were no longer a racing driver? I think probably relief was the best way to, to put it. Were there tears? The loss of Francois to both of us was really deep. Mm. Uh, and therefore, it wouldn't have been a joyous piece of information I was providing. Uh, but it, it was relief. You know, oh, well, that's terrific. You know, for her, for the boys, for everything. And the terrible thing was that Paul and Mark were watching television and the commentator said it was me who was killed. 
Yeah, two hours later they find out it wasn't me. You know, that was a bad one. But that's the sort of thing that happens outside of the, the picture. What has been your attitude to danger outside of being a racing driver? Danger? I don't know what it means. <laughs> I would completely avoid it. I've never been one to seek danger. I've never been, you know, a downhill skier. I've never been a anything. I know I don't see risk taking as a uh, as an excitement and and uh, you know people sometimes live for risk taking. I've never done it. I've never done it in business either. I'm not a risk taker. Well, look, can we just before we move on from the seventies, let's just reflect on. Um, I mean, it's interesting here. You can actually maybe people listening to this might be able to hear all the helicopters. We've got all the Day of the Dead celebrations going on. So there's a real carnival atmosphere here in Mexico City. But, but Jackie, the 70s. What yeah. was it like being... Let's well, move on from racing, but just being the celebrity that was Jackie yes, Stewart in the 70s with the sideburns and the long hair and the... It's the 60s and the 70s. The, the 70s for me were the long hair and the, you know, the dress and the coat of wardrobe I had um, was bizarre if you think of it in terms of that but it, ironically it wasn't bizarre because you know you think of those swinging 60s you know the Beatles the Stones the you know the, the whole thing it was just an amazingly glamorous exciting terrific people I mean getting to know George Harrison and, and the rest of the Beatles, getting to meet Frank Sinatra and getting, going for dinner with them and things like that and meeting exceptional people. Uh, but somehow or other, exceptional people were out there and, and, and they didn't hide it either. There was all sorts of things going on. It was just a fantastic window of a period I don't think will ever happen again. There's one other thing I wanted to ask you about your clay pigeon shooting and that you, we've talked about how it helped your racing, the hand-eye and mind management, that kind of thing. But when you look at your sporting successes, I just want to ask you about the Olympics in 1960. You just missed it. Yep. And I think that is the only sporting, I don't know... Failure. Well, I didn't want to use that. <laughs> that's what it was. Of, I, I hesitate a to use that word. very big disappointment. Disappointment. I, mean, I was reserving a two-man team, but I had been shooting in the four-man team all over the world, the World Championships, the European Championships, the Coupe des Nations, the British. I mean, I, mean, I won the, the, the Scottish, the Welsh, the Irish, and the English. Um, I won the European and Mediterranean. I won all the things. And the, my big year, I, was, I won almost everything. But the Olympic trials were a series of events. And the last round of the Olympic trials was in the North Wales Shooting School uh, near to Chester. Uh, and the, 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 the Jones family were my best friends. Uh, Alan Jones was the same age as I, and his father was the captain of the British shooting team. And it was in their layout was the last trial for the Olympics. And I missed getting into the Olympics with one target and my 21st birthday. Big disappointment. Biggest disappointment I've had in my life. I would love to have worn a blazer with the Olympic emblem on it. Uh, that was my biggest desire, N not ever to drive a racing car, but that was much bigger. <laughs> I was nervous about asking you that, but it is interesting. So that does 
stand out? Oh, yes. Because it was, see, you were competing against people of every age and in all sorts of worlds they lived in, farmers, gamekeepers, tycoons and everybody. It was an immense uh, kaleidoscope of people. Uh, and again, it was the early 60s, it was 50s and 60s. And I won all the big ones that I thought I should win. I never won the Olympics. I never actually won the World Championship. I was sixth in the World Championship. But it was an enormous education for me. Uh, and, you know, how to lose and how to win or how to overcome losing and to come back and win and take disappointments and, and how not to get carried away with success. A lot of people get carried away with success. It's, it's an ugly sight, usually. Well, I think there's lots of podcasts potentially with you, but I just wanted to now fast forward to Stuart Grand Prix. Yeah. You've achieved so much as a driver. You've achieved so much as a businessman in the 20 years between... Um, retiring as a driver and sort of becoming a team owner first with Paul Stewart Racing but Stewart Grand Prix why? Why did you need to do that? Uh, pressure from Paul Stewart Racing which was a very good little operation Paul wanted to drive racing cars I didn't want him to drive racing cars he, he hadn't done karting he hadn't done Formula Ford he suddenly decided while he was in college as they call it in America University at Duke which is maybe one of the top four universities in America and he one day by the swimming pool said Daddy I want to I want to be a racing driver I thought oh my god Paul I thought oh, your mother's going to die hearing that he said no but I want to do it and I said well I'm not going to help you I don't want you to be a racing driver and I said well I want to be a racing driver and the only thing I said well you'd have to be trained for it because you're not you know you're not like all the other people who are doing it they've had a good lead up to it I went to the Bob Bongerant racing school and he did become a racing driver so what did I do I got the very best mechanics at Formula Ford, but they were from Formula One and the higher formulas because I didn't want the wheels falling off and I didn't want mechanical failures and I was scared stiff they would have an accident. The fear. I had every telephone call of every press room in every circuit from Thruxton to Donington to Silverson to Brands Hatch to Cadwell Park to everywhere you could think of. Because I would phone and say, how's the race going? And, you know, twice and three times during a 20-lap race, is everything okay? Or Paul had a mechanic, oh, is he okay? And I had a wee shot, is he okay? Um, so we had good, we had very good mechanics because I didn't want any things falling off. And then we got a second driver when we really started to get serious with it because it would be economically better. And then I got lots of sponsorship. I mean, Walker Shortbread and 40 Hotels and all sorts of great names, of mostly from Scotland, ironically, but some from the South. So therefore we said, well, we better have... Why don't I have three cars instead of two cars? So now we, Andy Miller came on board as, as the team manager and good engineers, good names. 
that nobody knew at that time, but have turned out to be very successful. Um, and it, we got into Formula 3 from Formula Ford, then to Formula Opel or Vauxhall, whatever you were, Europe or Britain, and then to Formula 3, and then uh, to Formula 3000. And then I said, we've done it. Oh, no, 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 we, we want to go to Formula 1. <laughs> Who says that, though? Is that Paul? The, the team. Right. Yeah, because it was a staircase of talent for drivers. I mean, look at the drivers we've had. Uh, Gilles de Ferran, Castro Nevis, uh, Montoya, David Coulthard, Alan McNish. So we had huge success in that, winning the British Formula 3 Championship several, I don't know how many times. Um, and they said, oh, you've, we've got to go. And we had a nice place by then, and we had built a nice little unit. Oh, we've got to go Formula One. I said, oh, my God, we don't want to go Formula One. Anyway, I was talked into it by Paul and the, the rest of the team. And I went to Ford, and we did a deal, and we got sponsorship at the best level because I had great access, because I had won three world championships at that time, because, you know, motor racing was at a high, I think, of expectations and public and so forth. And we we made money, and when and and then I realised we weren't making enough money to ever compete against McLaren and Williams at that time. Where they might have had eighty million, we had twenty nine million. And I said, we're going to sell it. Well, two questions. First of all, what was the hardest part? Putting it together. So it was that financing leading, it, leading up. Oh, I never worked harder in my life. Really? I was, I, I worked, uh, I had a driver, Jerry Webb, who sadly died only a few weeks back. I had him for 43 years. And Jerry, I had, I moved from Switzerland, a big sacrifice. I moved from Switzerland to live in England because we had, and we built a factory, which is now the Red Bull factory, incidentally. And the same reception area and much of the, and, 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 uh, my office is now the office of the team principal of Red Bull. Uh, and I, I get there occasionally, and Christian Horner's a great man. And it's lovely for me to say, oh, you're in my office again. <laughs> um, and we built that, yeah. and it was great. But I saw, I didn't see the possibility of us being able to get to the level of a Ferrari or a Williams or a McLaren at that time. And Ford Motor Company decided they thought with all their investment with us because they paid us an amount of money to be on the car and they paid for half of the driver's fees and one or two other things. And then they, they suddenly somebody that was new at Ford Motor Company suddenly turned around and said, listen, Stuart's getting more out of this than Ford Motor Company. Um, Do you think that was true? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but it was good for Ford Motor Company, you understand. But anyway, he was quite adamant about it. He wanted to buy the company. And I didn't want to sell it, which is a nice combination. What Was this all in 99 or was it, when, when were you having uh, these 99, thoughts? it all happened very quickly. Right. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it was a relief. I enjoyed it. We won a Grand Prix with, with Johnny Herbert. We had lots of podium finishes. We had a fastest lap. We had a pole position in, in only three years. And that doesn't happen today. 
Well, I remember the Nurburgring 99 yeah. very clearly because I was actually shadowing you that weekend, I seem to remember, doing something. How big a kick did you get out of that win? Relief. <laughs> no, <but laughs> did it? To win a Grand Prix and, and to be on a podium at the Nurburgring of all places. Now, of course, it wasn't the old Nurburgring we won on. It was the new one, which is much more, more modest. But actually, the man said that the checkered flag that was waved to, with me in, six, in 68 in the fog he said it was the same flag that had been kept by the what was it, ADD or whatever the big automobile club is in, in. and I don't know if it's true or false and it was given to me and I don't know where it is now and I would love to have had that flag did you get as much satisfaction out of that win as any of your 27 as a driver? Can we say that Jackie Stewart has actually won 28 races? Uh, you could say that. Um, yeah, but that was a team. It was a great little team, great people, good quality, high quality. That is that is the most important thing for anybody who's listening to this. Go with quality people. My father taught me that if you fly with the crows, you're liable to be shot at. Crows are vermin. If you fly with the eagles, you're outside a shot. We had quality people all the way through, and I still have. I mean, that's one of the things. Don't hang around with the wrong people. You, you know, you get, you get judged by who you're with. And in our racing team, we had really good people good integrity, there was no backhanders, there was no inappropriate things happening. And I have to say at that time there was a lot of things happening in Formula One that I didn't feel comfortable with at all. And when we had the opportunity to sell it, the thing to do was sell it. Did you apply a lot of what you learned from Ken Tyrrell as a team boss? Oh yes. I mean, Ken Tyrrell was a fantastic man. I mean, he was the ultimate best team manager you could ever have had and, 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 and had the best mechanics. You know, mechanics never get the credit that they deserve. You know, if you're a winner, to finish first, first you've got to finish. And that means that you've got to have the best preparation, the best mechanics. And I had the best mechanics. And I, I, I had only one wheel off ever off my car, come off a car. It was the Austrian Grand Prix, and it, it was the race that I actually got the world championship because I had accumulated enough points, and Jackie X also had a mechanical that day. And that's the only time a wheel has ever come across off of a Jackie Stewart's car. And uh, because the guys who were putting it together for me were just the best and Ken Tillinger chose there not me he was the man who chose them Is that the biggest thing you learnt off Ken? Absolutely you, mm. you've got to have good people I don't care who's listening to this but there's three things you need you need the very best doctor you need the very best lawyer and you need the very best banker how many of those have I got? I'm just <laughs> now, look, there will be, actually, Jackie, a lot of people listening who are young, new to Formula One. And, of course, it's this weekend that Lewis Hamilton can become. Mm. Of course, we're recording this on the Saturday evening of the Mexican Grand Prix. Lewis is third on the grid, so we don't yet know whether he's done it this weekend. But it looks 
like he's going to do it at some point this year. Just your thoughts on Lewis as a driver, as a person. Well, Where I, is that in his career? I think he, he clearly broke new ground in that, first of all, he wasn't white. And there hadn't been anybody in the highest echelons of sport coming through it even. There didn't seem to be many other than white guys uh, coming through. And Lewis, from an early age, definitely showed that he was a very talented driver. His father had four different jobs, to my knowledge, just to afford his son because they came from uh, very limited resources uh, and, and lived in a very limited way. And therefore, Lewis came up the hard way as a young kid. But his father, I mean, sacrificed a huge amount by being able to get keep the the tires, the engines, and the preparation and the travel that was required for a young racing driver at a silly young age to become a serious player in karting, and then when Ron Dennis found him, that was just the luckiest thing that could ever have happened to any driver. Never mind Lewis, any driver. Uh, and I remember Lewis probably doesn't remember it, but I do being at. Paul Mall at the RAC, the Royal Automobile Club, and I presented him with a trophy, and he was dressed, in a, I'll never forget it, he was dressed, and it was a black tie night, and he was dressed in a velvet black tie suit, little boy, and he must have been, I would have thought, 10 or 11, uh, and maybe not, maybe 9, I don't know, but he, he probably has no recollection of retrieving that trophy from me, but I remember it. Uh, it's ironic that I remember it and I've never been close to Lewis for whatever reason and I don't think he's ever wanted to be close to me for whatever reason but that doesn't stop me from admiring what he's achieved Ron Dennis had a huge amount to do with that he moulded him in a way that as he grew up and became a man I think he objected to many of the the manners that Ron would have wanted to have him live by and broke loose and still was able to achieve the success that he ever dreamed of and left McLaren before there was any sniff that it might not have been competitive the following year and went to Mercedes-Benz. Now, these are all very strong, big decisions for any young person to make. So I think he's done a terrific job. His driving talent clearly is very high. He's had very few incidents, one or two that shouldn't have happened. But, you know, like in Barcelona, he and Nico running into each other before the first corner on the very first lap, that type of thing. 2016, I, yeah. I wouldn't have expected him to have. But he's got to learn. You make mistakes. We all do. But he's carried his success with enormous enthusiasm, and there was nobody been more uh, outgoing, if you like, uh, winning a motor race than Lewis. Um, and here he is uh, now, uh, in the eve, as we speak now, of becoming a real multiple world champion four times. Uh, you know, Fangio, I think, was only five. And and I think seven was was Michael Schumacher. Yeah, well, he can equal Fangio, can't he? That's it. Is it that means yeah. it's going to be five? Yeah, it's going to be five. Correct. Well, of course there are more races now, and there was a different environment, different whole thing. But nevertheless, it's a terrific achievement. And uh, 
you know, here we are. He hasn't done it yet, but it, 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 it's been done in my mind and, and, and good for him. Final question from me. Who on the current grid is closest to Jackie Stewart? <laughs> you mean uh, be better than Jackie Stewart? Well, you could. There's a long list, actually. No, just as a driver, who remind when you look at them, who reminds Vettel at his height? I think when he was winning his four times world champion at that time, he developed into being somebody that I really thought I admired as a as a driver. I think Lewis is doing that today, but somehow or other. Uh, you know, because Mercedes have been so totally overly successful, if you like to think of it in terms like that, as they have been historically, you know, when Fangio and Moss were there and when Caracciola was there long before that, they came in and won. And they've done it again, but for a longer period this time than ever before. Lewis has had a great benefit from being in unquestionably the fastest car in the circuit but he's driven it very well and I, I think the combination is, uh, is pretty impressive you know there's been a lot of top top racing drivers I mean Nicky Lauda for example Ayrton Senna another one I mean there's all sorts of Alan Prost think of that and Jim Clark I mean these are exceptional drivers terrific drivers what I like about my life is that I'm still in it. I still love it. And some of them don't have never done that and don't want to do it. Alan Prost, I think, was a genius at driving a car. He had, more, he had fewer hand movements on a steering wheel than any other driver other than maybe Fangio or Jim Clark. I, I think he was just one of the best drivers ever in the world. And he was overlooked by the fact that everybody thought Senna was... The best driver. He was sometimes the fastest driver, but I think um, Alan Prost was the better driver. So I think we could go on all of these people. <laughs> I think yeah. were just magic, and Lewis is joining that group, and that he should be very proud of. And Jackie, I think that's a, a wonderful place to end it. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. What a legend! Sir Jackie is the oldest living F1 world champion and this year celebrates the 50th anniversary of his third title. He has so many stories to tell, and however many interviews we do on this podcast, that one will always be special. If you want more on Sir Jackie, there's a great documentary about him called Legends of F1 on our on-demand video service, F1 TV. Go to f1tv.com to sign up and check that doc out. So three days down already. Tomorrow, 30 days of Beyond the Grid continues and we're bringing it back to the modern day. Follow the podcast so you don't miss it and I'll talk to you then.